Good morning, everybody. I realize that I don't take for granted in the way I once did just worshiping together, being able to come together and worship God. It's good to see everybody. Well, this is a quote from Father Richard Rohr. It says, there's nothing to prove and nothing to protect. I am who I am, and it's enough. We're going to play with this a little bit and turn it into a call and response. And I'm going to read the words as if from God to you. And I'm going to say, there's nothing to prove. There's nothing to protect. You are who you are, and that's enough. And then you will respond with Roar's words, there's nothing to prove and nothing to protect. I am who I am, and that's enough. And we're going to do it three times. So you ready? There's nothing to prove and nothing to protect. You are who you are, and that's enough. There's nothing to prove and nothing to protect. You are who you are, and that's enough. There's nothing to prove and nothing to protect. You are who you are, and that's enough. Amen. I had a season of being bullied in middle school, and I can make meaning of that pretty easily today, but at the time, it just felt terrible. I internalized uh, the shame. I absolutely knew that there was something wrong with me. The stories that I told myself for a number of years were rooted in that season of bullying, stories of why I deserved it, stories of why I was flawed or lesser than, stories of why this was my lot in life, this was what I could expect, stories that ultimately shaped who I loved and how I loved until I could get some healing. This kind of negative self-critique, I think is fairly endemic to our species. Not everyone, but I think many or even most of us can slip into this weird space of self-critique, and our inner critic can be pretty harsh. Often, we believe what we believe for good reasons. If a child is bullied, as I was, and they internalized, and they internalized the violence, which I did, though we feel terrible about it, we understand where the self-loathing arises from, right? My conclusions were never helpful, but I feel pretty understanding 
how they came to be and why I might have wrestled. But here's the thing, in this Lenten season where our theme is peace, these negative self-critiques that we wrestle with can do more to robbing us of our peace than almost anything. So the text that we're looking at this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke. It'll be familiar to some of you. Um, It's actually a story that situates itself inside another story, but for time's sake this morning, we're just going to take a look at this discrete um, episode. So we're starting at Luke 43. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. Like, how could you possibly know? Who touched? Everybody's touching you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at Jesus' feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Rather than my usual attempts at waxing eloquent about the scripture, I'm going to retell this story in the womanist tradition. So womanist theologians often imagine and tell fleshed out stories of women in the scripture who remain nameless with sparse details given to their lives. So here is my version of our scripture coming in the voice of the woman. I am a daughter of Sarah. When I was a small girl, I had all the hopes and dreams of every small girl. I'd be married, I'd have lots of children, and I'd care for my family. I'd be part of the community of Hebrews, participating in all of our festivals, and as I came of age, all the rituals prescribed for women. Then, the day I'd been waiting for came. I was 14 years old, and I started my bleeding. My mom, my sisters, my aunts, all had prepared me for that moment. I was a little frightened, but mainly I understood the importance of this passage into womanhood. I noted with some chagrin that my bleeding didn't stop as soon as I was expecting. That was okay. Mother told me there was a range. Don't be troubled, she said. 
But of course, that was years ago. My bleeding didn't stop. How do I describe the losses that I've experienced? If I couldn't stop the bleeding, I couldn't be married. I mean, who would have me? All my clothing would be stained. I couldn't go to temple. Most women missed some days every month due to their monthly bleeding. That was to be expected. But missing events would become my life. And then I was tired. I was so tired all the time. I guess it was from losing all that blood. I used every penny I had to seek help from every possible healer to no avail. Life was a constant battle. I argued with myself every day. I tried to tell myself that I am made in the image of God. I tried to tell myself that I am as worthy as everyone else. I tried to tell myself I'm not flawed. I did not somehow bring this on myself. I'm not bad. I tried to repeat the words from the song we sung in worship, that God was my shepherd, and I shall not want. But I did want. My pastures were not green. My waters were not still. And so I fought with myself. And truthfully, the world around me made my battle harder, not easier. I knew that they also questioned me, my sickness, its origins, my value. And then, one day, there was Jesus. By now, I'd given up. I'd used up my money. I'd stopped fighting myself. It was too hard. But there was something about Jesus, and I couldn't seem to hold back even if I wanted to. It was like God himself was beckoning me. All my protests were in vain. I watched as my legs moved closer. I watched as my body, unclean, they called it, touched others, making them unclean. How could I not touch people? They were like a swarm around Jesus. I watched as my hands seemingly took a life of their own, touching his garment. And just like that, it stopped. I touched his garment, and the bleeding stopped. I didn't have a chance to register what it meant. There was no time to feel. And Jesus knew, too. He felt power go out from him. I heard him saying, who touched me? 
Who, who touched me? I didn't know how to answer. Me, a ritually unclean, outside-the-camp woman? Me, the one forbidden by law to touch anyone? who just passed through a crowd of people, my smell alerting everyone to my presence. But then my body took over again. Timid and shaky, but this time I knew exactly what I was doing. I fell at the feet of the man in all his divinity, and I said these words that I dreamed of saying for 12 years. I said them audibly. Maybe I declared them. Rabbi, I said. Crowd, I said. Everybody under heaven, I said. I have been bleeding for 12 years. The law has called me unclean. I've not been part of temple life for a long, long time. I touched the hem of this man, and I am healed. My bleeding stopped. Jesus told me my faith had made me well. I think the crowd thought he meant the faith that it took to touch him. There's probably some truth to that. But I think he knew about my fight, my daily struggle with all those accusations in my head and how hard I tried to fight back. My favorite moment was when Jesus called me daughter. The healer heard my whole story. He looked into my eyes and he called me daughter. Today, I fought back. I declared myself I said no to all those accusations. I am a daughter of Sarah, daughter of the living God. This God-man Jesus, he saw me, and I am whole. The words of the woman. So what is this daughter of Sarah who speaks to us through the centuries have to say to us this morning? So I have four thoughts on this. Number one, the stories we tell ourselves are often corroborated. The culture our unnamed heroine lived in all agreed that she was ritually unclean. They would have assiduously avoided her crossing to the other side of the street. The stories she believed about herself were embedded in the system that she existed in. A couple months ago, I spoke about my anti-Semitism. I spoke about anti-Semitism. Growing up in my city with my last name and not being able to join certain clubs or purchase property in certain parts of our city spoke volumes to me about who I was and what I was worth. The systems and communities that we live in are often only too happy to provide a yes and amen to the lies we believe and the stories 
that we tell ourselves. Marie Bowen, who was instrumental in creating something called family systems theory, which adapts systems theory, so how systems work. He adapts them specifically to families. And he says this, he says, the more that people in any system understand how the system works, who it works for, who it privileged, who is demonized, who is excluded, the more we can challenge the stories we tell ourselves and the greater the chance of transforming ourselves in the system. By time Tom and I raised our children, we could talk with them about their value from a young age. When bullying happened to any of our children, we could help them understand it in its context. We would tell them that it is never about the person being bullied and that bullying is never okay, no matter what the reason. We could help expose the story that the child somehow deserved, that bullying. We could talk about the pressures of being adolescents, the, needs to have, the need to have allies and find a common enemy is so helpful, and so on. We became the dissenting voice for our children an opportunity to tell a different narrative. Number two, we're invited to identify the specific stories that we tell ourselves. What exactly are we believing? I'm not good enough. I'll never be good enough. My body is flawed. I deserve bad outcomes. Life's messes are my fault. I could have, should have, dot, dot, dot. They're never helpful. And it's not that we're perfect people, it's that the accusing voice we hear isn't God. It's not love. And it's often the system's voice that we have internalized and believed. The woman in our story likely believes that she's a second-class citizen because she's a woman in a male privileged culture. She likely believes that she or her parents have done something to deserve her outcome because streams of her religion believe that. She likely believes that the system in which she lives that keeps her outside of civil life, sentencing her to a lonely, hard existence, makes sense. It's unfortunate but it's God's way. She likely believes that she will never have hope, joy, a meaningful or purposeful life. She likely believes that she should be avoided. Articulating the story we're telling ourselves is so important. It is one of the reasons that I love our community so much. I can say something with my friends or in my prayer group, and my friends can say, oh, 80, I don't know if that sounds like God. I don't know if that sounds like you. And we can talk about it. Number three is fighting back. Our daughter of Sarah, as she walked towards Jesus, had to push back against all those stories the ones that she alone believed and told herself, and the ones inhabited by a community. She had to tell herself, I am worth it. 
I am worth pushing into this crowd. I am worth touching you and by doing so, breaking the law. That to be clear, never ever served me. I'm a daughter of Sarah, daughter of God, made in the image of God with God imbued worth and value. Putting one foot in front of the other was her fight. A bullied kid standing up to the bully, black people sitting in the front of the bus, women fighting for the right to vote, indigenous people protecting their land, trans children participating in sports are all pushing back against some belief system that says, mm, don't. Don't push back. Maybe you could just accept who you are. And number four, I told one dear friend in our community about the teaching that I was doing. I was excited about giving voice to the woman and had a lot of fun and joy doing that. But I was describing it to my friend and she was saying, Adie, how remarkable is it that this story um, was written and happened and told in the throes of patriarchy where body shaming is embedded in the law. That's where the story is told. Not only is it told, but the woman is given agency. She walked, she touched, she spoke. As we continue to write the Bible with our lives, we have the opportunity to tell stories that fly in the face of the dominant narrative. So I'm going to close with this. Um, some of you know who George and Marilyn Hansen are. Marilyn is here with us today. George, of course, is having an adventure. <laughs> they have been part of our church, I don't know, Marilyn, 20 years? About 20 years. Since we were a little church plant, I imagine we had 20 people at the most when Marilyn and George came to our church. They have been surrogate parents and grandparents to dozens and dozens of us over the years, um, including my children, who stayed with them when we went away to a, a church conference for a week. Recently, George decided to hike the Appalachian Trail. Not a trivial thing. It is a six-month rigorous hike. The elevation gain is equivalent to climbing from sea level to the top, Mount Everest, up and down 16 times. George is 76 years young. George and I have talked several times recently as he has been, as he's been describing um, his adventure, and the grueling training that he's doing to prepare for these 12 to 15 mile a day hikes with his 30 pound backpack. So this is a quote from George. On April 5th, I plan to hike the Appalachian Trail from Amacola, Alola State Park in Georgia the 2,196 miles 
to Mount Katahdin in Maine. Marilyn will be my support person and meet me from time to time for refreshment and encouragement. My motive behind this six-month endeavor is multifold. I'm raising money for cancer research, but it also has set this as a challenge for me personally to somehow reject the common narrative that now that I'm old and retired, I should sit back, put my feet up, drink my beer, eat potato chips, and watch TV. I personally found that a little enticing. I watched my father when he was aging. He worked hard his whole life, and after he retired, he had no motivation for doing anything else. He just sat. The last 10 years of his life were miserable. His body and strength declined quickly, along with that, his mind. I was deeply impacted by this. Watching his decline was so sad. I want a different story, if that's possible. I want a story that life isn't over until it's over. I want to immerse myself in God's beauty and God's creation. I am fighting back against all those voices that say, this hike is too much that I need to protect myself from potential harm, that there's too much sacrifice, too much commitment, that it's too dangerous, that it's not worth it. I accept my body and my life as a gift from God to me, a very precious gift. I will cherish it. I'm excited about all that lies ahead. Marilyn shares in all my excitement. This is the challenge I have set for myself. Maybe even an invitation from God. And maybe in the end, God will say, good job. No matter how far I get, I think God will say, well done, George. In the meantime, I will enjoy the journey. Amen.